Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is David Kunzman and I will be your host for today. Today we'll be talking with Gregory Harms, the author of No Politics, No Religion, How America's Code of Conduct Conceals Our Unity, published by Political Animal Press in 2022. Gregory has taught moral and political philosophy for the past decade at places such as Lewis University and Juliet Junior College in Illinois. His scholarship has had special focus on U.S. foreign policy and the Middle East. You can find Gregory's writings in places such as Counterpunch and Truthout. Gregory has also written titles such as The Palestine-Israel Conflict, A Basic Introduction, which is now in its fourth edition as of 2017. It's Not About Religion, published in 2012 and Straight Power Concepts in the Middle East, U.S. Foreign Policy, Israel, and World History, published in 2010. I've also had the pleasure of having Gregory Harms as my philosophy instructor at Joliet Junior College, and I hope you enjoy the interview for today. So we usually like to start our interviews by asking our guests just their current background and how they came to write their current book. So uh, Gregory, how did you come to write No Politics, No Religion? I started with the, I start, it started with a concern I had about how in this culture, uh, maybe taken broadly, that uh, it's, it's become a code of conduct that I hear over and over and over again that, you know, these two topics are, you know, they've become like verboten, they've become uh we were discouraged from talking about these topics of politics and religion. Um, and I've talked to many, 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 many uh, students, and they report the same thing, um, that, you know, these topics are not welcome <laughs> at the table or at the dinner table or at family, you know, events like Thanksgiving or something like this. Um and you're just not supposed to talk about them. And this is based on a based on the premise that these topics are inherently uh, inherently destabilizing and inherently uh, fraught with you know the 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 they'll invariably lead to conflict and bad feelings and bickering and so on and so forth. And I've been teaching for ten years now. And we talk about politics and religion in the classroom, and we have for a decade. And I have never once had a student, you know, come unhinged and have a meltdown and people get angry. And I, it's never happened. You can have a rational, constructive conversation about these topics. Uh, it's how you approach them. It really is about how you approach them and what you're what kind of intentions you're bringing to those topics. You know, if, 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 if your point of departure is ideological, if your point of departure is, um, you know, I'm right and you're wrong, or, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative and you're a liberal, and therefore you're my, then, 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 then there's automatically right out of the gate uh, an adversarial sort of, dynamic at work um and i just don't think that's a (laughs) i don't think it's a very help helpful or constructive way to approach these topics these topics based on my research uh these topics if handled correctly if handled constructively if handled rationally um can lead to greater agreement and greater harmony and can emphasize the commonality that we share 
uh, as humans, as Americans, and so on. You know, um, but it's it 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 it's it it's all in the approach. That's what I have found. So, in the preface of the book, you mentioned, I guess, two images of America. You named them Accord America and Asunder America. And Accord America seems to be the the America that's revealed by the public opinion polls. And as, why do you feel that Asunder America is the image that we're sort of bombarded with? I think I think we're I think the population is 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 constantly beat over the head with the with the wrong assumption that the nation's divided and Americans can't even dis, can't even agree on you know how many sides a triangle has uh, and th- this is patently false you know but they're told this the population is told this routinely and it's just drilled into the popular it's drilled into the American um imagination and it's drilled into the population's picture of itself um and it's just not true because if yeah you you mentioned the public opinion polls i mean if if you look at the public opinion polls and i believe me i have um they tell a totally different story but even even like if it like i read the new york times religiously you know i read it every day um and you'll see it in the paper you see it in the New York Times on a regular basis. On in one story, or one you know uh, editorial, or one opinion column, or something like that, like this, or even even on the front page, you know they'll talk about how the country is divided and so on and so forth. And then and then like two columns over, there'll be an article about you know oh well according to a poll done by the Wall Street Journal and whoever. Uh, you know, 64% of Americans are on the same page about, you know, whatever issue. And I'm like, I am just find that astounding that the message prevails despite the very clear data that the message is false. So you even, even within one newspaper, it's a major newspaper, but even within one paper at the same time on the same day, they send the message that Americans are divided, and they talk about they, 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 everything's couched in that assumption. And then the paper also reports that the majority, uh, to, a, to a significant degree, uh, are on the same page, that they're in agreement. Well, which is it? Well, I think we should look at the data and not the assumptions of some columnist or some reporter, you know. Um, but the, but this, 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 this assumption that Americans are divided and the country is divided, um, it, it's taken root, like I said, in the, in, in the American imagination. And that is our conception of ourselves now is that the country is divided. The country is divided. Yes, absolutely. When it comes to the, when it comes to voting, I mean, you see it, you see it all the time, you know, down to any of these these elections, you know, for representative or senator or whoever, are down to the razor's edge. I mean, they're they're, they're counting. You know, I mean, uh, five hundred votes could could tip it one way or the other for an entire state. I mean, it's down to it's down to the edge. But yeah, so yes, the voting is split. The country's divided politically. I mean, that is to say. Um, I would say ideologically divided because we frame our, we, 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 we frame our conversations about these things, you know, as Democrats, as liberals, you know, so on and so forth. And that's how we vote. But when the population goes to the polls, the population is not, is not voting for its interests. It's voting. It's gone into what I call the blue red circus tent. And when you go into the blue red circus tent, you leave your your actual wants and preferences at the door and then you adopt this other artificial vocabulary that has been provided by washington dc and i think that's why the elections are always razor thin is 
people are voting as Democrats, as liberals, and so on and so forth, you know. And they're also participating in a personality contest, which I think is dangerous in and of itself. But I think that's why the 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 what I call in the preface the you know, asunder America. Uh, I think that's the one that gets all the attention because that's how we behave. We're not voting for our, we're not voting our preferences. If we voted our preferences, Elizabeth Warren would be in the White House. You know, Bernie Sanders would be in the White House, not Joe Biden. You know, not not Obama, not Trump. You know, these these, these people wouldn't be get anywhere near the White House if the population actually voted its material interests. I believe the, the the terminology used is the difference between polarization and divided. Is that right? Uh, yeah, polarization reflects um, well. One, you know, the former creates the latter. Uh, the polarization is how we. Um, it's it, it's certainly a highly polarized country, no doubt about it. But that 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 is in reference to how we talk about these things and how, you know, uh, how we, how we frame our discussions and, you know, how we divide one another up into liberals and conservatives. You know, if, if you, if you, if you utter one single sentence about politics in this country, someone with an earshot will, will just rubber stamp what you just said as liberal or conservative or something like this. Um, and it's even happened in Washington. You know, we, we used to have, you know, conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. You know, those days are those days are over. You know. Now now they become synonymous. You know, to be to be Democrat is to be liberal and to be Republican is to be conservative. They become perfectly synonymous in this very tight grouping around these two poles. And that's the phenomenon that you're seeing in, in, in elections and in the public discourse. So in the next two chapters of your book, you try to give a philosophical grounding and a scientific grounding to make your case that America is more in accordance. So in the philosophical chapter, you start with the Enlightenment. You mentioned uh, Shaftesbury, Butler, Smith, and Hume, mm-hmm. and the and Rousseau. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be pushing back against uh, Hobbes. I guess the question for our listeners is, uh, who was Hobbes and why are these other figures pushing back against him? The, 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 the chapter of what you speak, uh, when I talk about the philosophers, um, is really an, an analysis and a, and a discussion of human nature and how we look at ourselves. And yeah, they did. They did kind of gang up on Hobbes. Um, Thomas Hobbes was an English uh, philosopher considered the founding father of, you know, uh, modern political theory. He wrote the masterpiece Leviathan. Um, and he's, he's frequently mischaracterized as someone who's, who was saying that, you know, humans are just terrible creatures that were prone to violence and left to our own devices. Uh, we'll just tear one another limb from limb. Yeah. So when you've got all these Enlightenment thinkers, people like Rousseau, people like Adam Smith, people like David Hume, who really took issue with this and revolutionized how we look at humans and how we talk about human morality. They just they just flipped it on its head. Um, And I, I found that very interesting that, you know, the human being that Adam Smith is talking about. And, 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 and Rousseau, um, they emphasize that we are sympathetic, cooperative creatures that we're not prone to violence and, you know, tearing each other apart, but we are motivated by sympathy and compassion, which is correct because it, as I've, as I've said in the classroom, God knows how many times. Now, if human beings were naturally vicious, if we were inherently or genetically or innately uh, aggressive and greedy and competitive and backstabbing and all this stuff, there wouldn't be any humans. We wouldn't be here. 
the reason there are 8 billion human beings on this planet is because we tend to get along and we tend to cooperate. That's not to suggest that we're angels by any means, you know, but we tend to uh, get along. We tend to cooperate more often than not. Yeah, human beings are capable of all kinds of really terrible actions and behaviors, but um, that's not representative of the species. You know, I've had the good fortune to do a fair amount of traveling. And and you don't need to travel around the world much to see that. And it sounds, it sounds facile and it sounds sort of precious, but I mean, people are really the same all over the world. They're not that different. I mean, they look different. They'll eat different food. They'll listen to different music and they dress differently and so on and so forth. But that's, that's at the surface, you know, what do they actually want? They want to be left alone, <laughs> you know. Uh, they 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 want you know they want a job. They want a job that pays something. Uh, they more often than not try to get along with their neighbors. You know, yeah, people can be bad neighbors, but um, you just don't see aggression and viciousness when you travel around the world. You don't. That's representative. I mean, but but. The person who's acting badly, the person who's, you know, acting in a ridiculous, irrational way on, on a commercial flight, that's what gets the news. And then everybody watches it, and then people are like, oh, people are nuts. You know, people are out of their minds. You know, look at this person on this on flight such and such. You know, he's screaming at everybody and carrying on and threatening the flight staff and whatever but the, the, uh, yeah okay there's one person doing that you know but there's 200 people that aren't there's 200 people that think good lord why am i on the flight with this guy you know um there's 200 people that aren't and i think 200 is more important than one but that's how we're that's sort of how it's presented in you know uh in the news outlets you know you watch cnn you're gonna see People doing terrible things, you know, you're going to watch, you know, whatever, you know, read the news and you're going to read about people doing terrible things, but that's, a, those are very small numbers. These are not representative of, of, of the species. They're not, you know, you're not going to, but, but you're not going to turn on CNN and read about how, you know, so-and-so, you know, baked bread for their, for their neighbor. Or whatever, you made a cake or something. You're not going to hear about that. You're going to hear about the person who's, you know, acting like a lunatic on the airplane. That's all. That that'll make the news. Not baking a cake for your neighbor, you know, or helping your neighbor, you know, dig his car out of the snow or something like that. You know, you're not going to hear about that. But that's what happens a lot. That that basically defines if I can use that word, uh, the species is people helping one another, you know, get their cars unstuck in the snow or whatever, you know, that, that is, that, that is human behavior. The, the person who's acting like a lunatic on the airplane, uh, that's not representative of anything. That's just that one guy, you know? So I think we need to look at the big number, not the small number. So in the, in the science chapter, you you give scientific examples of different disciplines, I guess, confirming Hume and Smith's sentiments of morality. Were, were you surprised by that when you first discovered that? I I, I kept seeing it. I, I, thought, I thought I well, I wasn't I wasn't surprised because I thought these guys these these particular thinkers are onto something. But um, I kept seeing it, and I found that fascinating. You know, the, 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 the amount of research that has gone into basically substantiating what these thinkers had to say. And I'd start, you know, if I, if I found someone, I'd immediately buy his or her book and, you know, flip, immediately flip to the index just to see, you know, I'm like, yep, there they are. There's Hume, there's Smith, there's Rousseau, there, you know, that the, the they're all, it's like Hume. It's, it's kind of funny. It's like, you know, 
he was been dead for a very long time. He died in 1776. Uh, and he's the talk of the town. All these modern 21st century researchers, psychologists, anthropologists, neuroscientists, um, you know, the list goes on. Um, they talk about Hume. And I just, I just found that fascinating that I kept, I kept happening upon that. I kept seeing that. I kept seeing that. I kept reading the books and I'm like, God, they, they keep talking about Hume. And I just thought that was, I thought that was fantastic. And I, I was really, um, yeah, fascinated with how these thinkers in during the enlightenment are being substantiated and commanding so much attention among these modern day 21st century researchers and they're bearing them out. I mean, they're doing research and on babies and, you know, infants and infants and toddlers at Yale. And again and again and again, what Hume and Adam Smith and others had to say about human nature is, is, is being borne out in, you know, research labs and so on. Yeah. Again and again, I I just thought it was remarkable that (laughs) all these scientists are talking about Adam Smith and David Hume. So I, so I thought, God, someone needs to know about that. This is, this is a story that really needs to be told. So I decided to tell it and it leads right into the politics. So you dedicate two chapters to religion, one being a very broad, a, a very broad history of religion, starting from proto-religion, ritual, uh, like very rituals that the, that the Neanderthals gave, from animism all the way up to monotheism. And the next chapter is dealing with, uh, you feel that religion gets a bad rap. And you take on some of these figures known as the new atheists, uh, Dawkins, Hitchens, and uh, Harris. Um, why, why, why do you feel that religion gets a bad rap? I think it's become a reflex uh, to blame religion. You know, I've heard it. I've heard it a thousand times. Like, oh, you know, religion makes people stupid. Be, you know, it, it encourages them to believe strange things and it leads to violence and people blame, you know, warfare, historical warfare on religion. And I just don't think if you look at the history, this doesn't, this, this is not borne out. It's not. Um, religion, humans seem to do spirituality of one kind or another. Uh, we seem to be sort of pre-programmed, I guess you might say. Uh, you see, we seem to be, we seem to have a, a predilection or a, a natural sort of innate inclination toward the spiritual. Now, I wouldn't call what what was going on in early human history. I wouldn't call that religion necessarily. You know, the animism of the foraging humans, you know. I, I wouldn't call that religion. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call what humans were doing religion until much, much later. You know, when things, when there's a scripture and there's, it, these things became codified and organized. Um, that's what I would call religion. You know, um, the oldest among them today are the, the oldest. I mean, the, you could start the clock at maybe 3000 years ago. Well, that's nothing. I mean, in human history, that's that, that that's last week, you know. Um, and so, I think if you look at religion, you you see you see this unifying, you see a unifying force. You don't see something that leads to bloodshed and violence. You see something that leads to commonality. Um, and then these 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 new atheists that you mentioned, um, you know, these, these people are just very proud and very impressed with themselves because they're atheists. And, you know, they, they, they go looking in the Quran and they go looking in the Bible for inconsistencies and they, they approach 
these texts like they're physics textbooks and I, and and they have the they have the they have the, those expectations of the Bible, which is ludicrous. I mean, obviously, they don't know much about biblical history or the history of the Quran, where these texts came from. These 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 texts were created in a particular context by particular authors, um, and they should not be approached like a physics textbook because they are not. They're not that. Um, they are. They're not perfect. They. Yeah, you can find whatever you're looking for in the Bible or in the Quran. Fine. You can. If that's your agenda, you can find whatever you're looking for. Um, but if you look, if you go to mass and you, <laughs> and you, you, you visit a, a mosque in the Middle East in the Arab world, um, you see people coming together, getting along. And using religion as a as as a way to you know the assumption is that God expects his followers uh, to be upright, to live a to live a better life, to be a better person. You know, I don't, people who go to church on Sunday they're not looking at the Bible like, oh, here, here's a this is an interesting passage, so I'm justified in doing X, Y, and Z. You know, that's not what they're doing. They're looking, they look at those parts of these texts. They look at, they, they focus on those parts that encourage uprightness and virtuousness. And that, those are the parts that get discussed by imams, by priests, you know, whomever, you know, that those are the parts that get emphasized, not everything else in the text. So again, it, 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 it it's contingent on an approach. What do you want to achieve? Now these new atheists, they're very you know these are very self-impressed, self-congratulatory intellectuals who, incidentally, worshipped American state power. Okay, they there's a quasi sort of religious character in how they worship American power, or American military power. Uh, there's that borders on the religious, uh, but that that never come that never comes up in their conversations. That they that they I, I wouldn't call that religious behavior by any means, but um, they seem to they're perfectly free and willing to uh, to bow down and worship, you know, fighter jets and stuff like that. What do you think separates like the, the old atheists, someone like Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx from these new atheists? Well, I think it's I think it's debatable whether Nietzsche was an atheist. Um I don't know if we know that. But I take your point. Um those Nietzsche Nietzsche and, and Marx were doing a kind of analysis. They were doing analysis. They were philosophers. Um, and Freud has his, had his philosophical moments, of course, and Freud knew his philosophy. Uh, they were doing analysis, and they were trying to achieve something. Um, Marx was talking about the you know industrial capitalism and and the human misery that pr- it is produced by human by human endeavor by power relations. Um, Nietzsche was focusing on, I couldn't say I, I agree with Nietzsche to the letter uh, about his politics, but he's talking about, he's basically a virtue ethicist. He's talking about being a better person. Um, he just didn't have much use for Christianity. Um So fine, he's crit- he's critical of Christianity. He's critical of Christianity at the level of, you know, at the at the level of moral philosophy. Um, I don't. He didn't really have much to say about, you know, Christ being the Son of God and all this stuff. He, I don't think it really interested him much. Um, he was just critical of the of the of the morality, and Nietzsche re- revolutionized how we look at human morality. 
not the way Hume and Adam Smith did, but um, Nietzsche was more preoccupied with uh, value systems than anything else. But so yeah, so I mean these these particular thinkers weren't thrilled with religion, but they didn't make it a make it a villain. They didn't blame you know all this historical bloodshed on religion. They just didn't have a particular use for it in their in their in their in their in their separate analyses. And I don't they weren't really they weren't really, you know, the Hitchens and, and Harris and these guys, uh, they're really I mean their their agenda is themselves presenting themselves as an as enlightened and you know we're supposed to be very impressed with them as intellectuals um that that doesn't describe nietzsche and marx at all you know nietzsche and marx had something to offer and they wanted and they helped us understand the world a little better these the four horsemen as they you know self-styled uh they didn't bring anything to the world. They didn't help us understand anything except their own narcissism. That's all they had to see. That's all they seemed to offer. You know, does that answer your question, David? Yeah. Yeah. In the last part of the book, you bring up political language, like liberal and conservative socialism. Yeah. Yeah. What, 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 what do you think we get wrong when we use those terms? Well, in the public discourse, liberal means left, you know, and then conservative. I don't even really know what that word means anymore. Um, I don't see anything conservative about American conservative politics. Um, liberal is not left. Liberal is a centrist political philosophy. It's in the, it's at the dead center. And that is where the population lies. That is how you calibrate the political spectrum is you focus on where does the population sit? Well, it sits at the center is where else are you going to put the center? If 67% of Americans, you know, agree on X, Y, and Z, then that's, that's the center. You know, I mean, Bill Clinton doesn't define the center. Dick Cheney doesn't define the center. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't define the center. You know, the population defines the center. And so if we, if we understand the concept of liberal better, then we know to move it to the center. And this tells us, and if we, when we do that, this tells us and shows us something very interesting because the population's at the center, both political parties, both major political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans are well to the right of the center. They both are. Now, there's probably more daylight between those two than there has been in decades past. Um, there's more. The, the, the Democrats are moving to the left. That is correct. But I, you know, I tell my students, you have to understand the second part. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll never understand this stuff. So, yes, that is correct. The Democrats are slowly moving to the left, uh, toward the center. And the Republican Party is moving to the right, away from the center. And they're already right of center. They're, the Republican Party is just moving further and further away from what the population wants. And the, and the Democrats are moving closer to what the population wants. I mean, so if you take someone like Bernie Sanders, I mentioned earlier, um, you know, he's considered this leftist socialist. Well, he's neither. He's not a leftist. He's not one millimeter to the left of the population. And he's not a socialist. He can call himself a socialist all he wants, but he's not. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can call herself a socialist, but she's not. She's not one millimeter to the left of the population either. Neither is Elizabeth Warren or whomever. You know, um, these aren't leftist politicians. I don't. We don't even have leftist politics in this country. I mean, there are some small parties. There are some small political parties that get like three votes 
and you know they're Marxist or whatever. You know, even the Green Party, which is considered way left, it is not. If you look at the if you look at the Green Party's actual positions on on and where they stand, you know, the, the, their platform, um, they're a centrist. They're a centrist party. I mean, they use some leftist language occasionally. Um, but that's just in their that's just the rhetoric they prefer. If you look at their actual concrete positions on on different things, they're centrist. So all of these, you know, all in you know, the Green Party, Bernie Sanders, AOC, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, these are all centrist. These are all centrist people. These are all centrist. This is centrist politics we're talking about. Um, and then people like Clinton, Bill, both Clintons. Bill and Hillary, uh, Obama, Joe Biden, you know, those, they're all cut from the same bolt and they're all to the right. They're all Republicans. They're all operationally what Republicans used to be in the seventies. That's all they are. That's all they are. They're nothing more. And they're, they've all been branded as progressive leftists, which is a joke. You know, the, the New York Times has no patience for Bernie Sanders. You know, the, but the, the New York Times is very protective of the Clintons and of Joe Biden and of the sort of old guard, you know, um, these Democrats that are operationally Republicans, what, what the Republicans were in like in the 70s. Um, they're very protective of them and they've helped to frame this conversation which is totally wrong if you want to talk about what the population wants if you want to talk about centrist politics then you got to talk about bernie and you got to talk about elizabeth warren um I, what's obama got to do with anything what what we did we get did we get universal health care no um we, we got we got a republican we got we got the affordable care act which is which was forged in the uh it was which was forged at the Heritage Foundation. It's a Republican policy initiative. That's why the Republicans hate it because it's their plan. <laughs> he just took it and ran with it. Um, did we see? Did we see deep, s- substantive reform on Wall Street? No. No, they're all Wall Street friendly. Obama was Wall Street friendly. Trump, Mister Drain the Swamp, he's Wall Street friendly. Uh, Biden. The, a friend of mine uh, made me laugh uh, fairly recently. He, he described Biden as an old Communist Party apparatchik who the, you know, the party has decided can be general secretary finally. You know, that that's all Biden. That's all Biden is. You know, th- I thought it was really funny that he, he put it in those terms. Yeah. The party has decided that, 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 that Biden can be general secretary. So at the end of the book, you give a chapter, what can we do? So what can we do about this polarization that we're facing now? The thing I principally um, advocate, I guess, is the word, um, is we need to talk to one another. I know that sounds sort of like a non-answer, but that really is the answer. We need to talk to one another, and we need to not be afraid of these two topics, politics and religion. We just need to approach them with a different mindset and discuss them in a, in a constructive way. And, and start the conversation with where we agree, which is most of the time. Um, you know, I mean, the reason your the reason your uncles bicker is uh, they they've already decided that the other person is you know their opponent or something. You know, you know, I watch this news program. He watches that news program. He's a liberal. I'm a conservative. They have these these ideological battles using words they, my observation, don't understand. Which is a terrible way to start a conversation. It's not a conversation, really. <laughs> it's just two people yelling at one another or bickering about ideological labels that they don't understand. That's not a conversation. That's not a debate. Um, I mean, if you look at the polling data, there's plenty 
for us to agree on, you know. So start the conversation there. Start the conversation with where we agree. And as for, you know, arguing about news programs like, you know, I prefer Fox or, you know, I've noticed that it's very common for Americans to uh, associate whatever their news preference is with what they like. So I've, I've, you know, I, I teach on three different college campuses and, you know, I'll be sitting around reading the New York times and I've had students plural, uh, kind of, you know, walk up to me and ask me, why do you like the New York times? I mean, that question tells us a lot. So if I'm reading the New York Times, I automatically like the New York Times. So you have to like your news source. So if I watch Fox, I like Fox. If I watch CNN, I like CNN. I think that's, I mean, I'm, I'm glad the students came up to me and talked, you know. But, I mean, in general, I think that's a pretty juvenile mindset. Who says you got to like the news source you're tuning into or reading, you know? It's just a news source. You don't like your bank, you know? You don't you don't like J.P. Morgan Chase. You just happen to bank there, you know? Or maybe you had lousy customer service someplace else or whatever. But I, you, you don't bank at Chase because you like Chase, you know? You just bank there. So then you have certain expectations of the bank, you know, how they manage your money, how how do they how do they operate as an organization, so on and so forth. Um, you have certain expectations of them. But you don't know who the president of your bank is. How many people know who the CEO of JP Morgan Chase is? Not many. But they, but Americans have highly personalized politics and news sources, news outlets. It's become a very personal thing. You know, I like this candidate. I like this news source. But you know, and then they, they judge the the various candidates at election time according to, you know, those criteria, like, who do I like? I don't like her laugh. I don't like his, I don't trust his face. I mean, they just, they're judging these candidates by very superficial um, criteria instead of trying to match where you actually stand on political issues and where, you know, politician A, B, or C stands on those same issues. That's how you evaluate a candidate, by where they stand on the issues that are important to you, and are they somewhere in the vicinity of your preferences? Who cares if you like them or not? It's not, it's not really, that's not what they're there for. They're there to do a job, and hopefully do the job some like I said somewhere in the vicinity of your political preferences. Um, so I I think we need to depersonalize politics in the news and communicate with one another at the level of preference. What where we agree and dispense with this ideological. Uh, with this ideological identification, you know, I've decided I'm a liberal, so I have to, everything gets, everything passes through that filter or prism, you know, I, I, that's, you're not even, if, if, you, if you're using those labels and you're leaning on those labels, then you're really not even thinking. You're just wearing a jersey. You're just cheering, you're just rooting for a team. And, that, and then right off the bat, you're not, you're not thinking. You know, we how can we have a conversation when the when one party's not thinking? You can't. So, just use your own language and talk about what your preferences are. 
and try to find some common ground with your interlocutor, with the person with whom you're speaking. Try to find some common ground. Start with where you agree, not with where you don't. And dismiss the whole liberal conservative nonsense. Those you you can you can have a perfectly rational, productive conversation about politics and never once use those words. I practice this in my day-to-day life. You could have a conversation, David, you and I could have a conversation about politics that could last three hours long, and you'll never hear those words come out of my mouth not once. You don't need them. You know. I don't I don't even I don't even use those words. And I study you know, political philosophy. I mean, I know what those words mean. I know what classical liberalism is. I've I've read my John Locke, and I know what conser. I know I know what conservatism is. I've read my Edmund Burke. So I mean, I, I I've got a background in these writings, and I know what those words mean. But I don't use them. I don't use them. They have they they they're of no use to me in articulating my political preferences and what I want to see and what I, you know, and what I want for the country. So that, that, I guess if I had a, you know, advice or a suggestion about how to proceed, I think that would be it to not talk about these things in such a charged, um, antagonistic way. And then you can have a conversation, you know, so I guess in regarding someone's maybe someone's personal political self-development and they feel themselves trapped in maybe an ideological silo, do you have any recommendations or tips how one can get themselves out of said silo? I guess just stop using the words. <laughs> you know, just stop stop using those. You can just... I know, it, it might take a it might take a while to get used to it, but I mean you don't you can just stop using them. You know? If you start using those words, you get trapped into that polarity. You get trapped into arguing someone else's point. You know, those those, those terms are what they use on 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 Capitol Hill, you know. I mean if you're arguing as a Democrat or as a Republican, then you're not arguing your own position. And why would you adopt someone else's vocabulary and someone else's preferences? The Democratic Party and the Republican Party do not represent American preferences. They don't. So if you're using their language and you're thinking their thoughts, then you've left your own preferences behind. You've abandoned your own preferences. So I would just say, I mean, just, just don't use that language. You don't need to use that language. That's someone else's language. And I think it's really important for your listeners to bear in mind that both parties, blue and red, uh, do not represent this country. They represent themselves and they represent their lobbyists but they don't represent their constituents. They don't. The polling data is crystal clear on this. There's no room for debate. The polling data is what it is, and both parties are to the right of the population significantly. There's probably more daylight between the two between the two major parties at this point, but that's not saying much. That's not really saying much. And the Republicans have moved so far to the right, and they're moving. F- they're moving farther to the right, and they're, they're, they're so remote from what the working class wants and what the middle class wants that I don't know if they have a future in American politics. The Democrats, I think I, you know, I mentioned this earlier, the Democrats are moving to, to the left. That's correct. But they're moving to the left toward the center. They're moving toward popular opinion, public opinion. They're moving toward it. So to say they're moving toward the left, you know, I mean, you know, there are a number of uh, there are a number of their opponents on Capitol Hill who would paint the Democrats as becoming some kind of Marxist socialist party, which is a joke. I mean, it can't be taken seriously. They are moving to the left. That is true, but toward the center, toward public opinion. So I think just, you know, 
don't use those words. Don't, you know, just ignore the language used on Capitol Hill. And bear in mind the opinion polls. Keep, you know, think your own thoughts. That I guess that's I guess that's my best advice would be to think your own thoughts, and 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 don't don't allow Washington D.C. to you know sort of um, trick you into adopting their language, which is what your uncles are doing when they're bickering. They're just arguing between that space, that very narrow space between the parties, between the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, that, that whole, that whole space, but that space between the two parties is to the right. It's, 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 it's far to the right of the population and what the population wants. So I guess if that's, I mean, does that, does that answer your question, David? Yeah, I, I, I guess one of, I don't know if it's a concern, but I guess one of like, how would you recommend people finding, I guess, new sources with substantive content that don't use these highly charged language? Because it seems like the, the news media has been, become uh, like an almost an entertainment wing of cable news or something like that. Yeah, it's, boy, a lot of them use it. I mean, it's hard to get away from it. You just have to sort of filter it out as you're reading, you know, hopefully you're reading your news. Uh, as for televised news, televised news in this country is terrible. Uh, you got CNN, which is terrible. You got Fox, which is, they would have to come up to terrible. And then you got the network news like Channel 5 and Channel 7. You know, they're not even, that's just embarrassing. They're just, they're just, they're just, they're not doing the country a service. They're not informing the country. You know, no educated society would tolerate those news programs for a minute. They'd be laughed out of existence. Um, definitely read your news over watching your news. Um, I talk, tell students this all the time. And then as for print news, if I had to, you know, recommend a sort of a morning roundup, if you will, uh, I would say, even though I am very critical of it, I would definitely say the New York Times. Um, that's not to say that I have some great love for the New York Times. I certainly don't. I've written about this. I'm very critical of that newspaper. But I would still, nevertheless, say read the New York Times every morning. Um, I find The Guardian, which is a British news organization, I find The Guardian very informative and helpful. Um, there are independent sources like Democracy Now. They have a radio station, a podcast. Uh, they're on television. They got a website. You can watch videos. You can click on all the stuff that they do on their on their show. Democracy Now has done excellent work for many years now. Um, Democracy Now and their host Amy Goodman. Um, very informative, you know, they have experts and scholars on and they interview them and you can actually learn something watching democracy. Now, <laughs> imagine, imagine that, uh, you could watch CNN 10 hours a day, seven days. You can just quit your job and just watch CNN for the rest of your life. And you won't know in 10 years after watching CNN seven days a week, you won't know any more about the Middle East than you did when you started. That's because the coverage is ridiculously bad. But you can watch Democracy Now! and listen to interviews and listen to people who know what they're talking about. People like Rashid Khalidi, people like Noam Chomsky, you know, uh, people like Hanan Ashrawi. Uh, you can listen to, you know, they'll interview these people and you can learn something. You can learn something about, you know, what's going on in the Palestinian territories that you'll never hear on CNN. Never, ever. Um, so I definitely recommend Democracy Now! Uh, another website that I highly recommend, <clears throat> I recommend it to students um, all the time, is uh, the, the, the explainer website, Vox, V-O-X dot com. 
um, they take what's in the news, like the major stories, and then they explain it <laughs> in plain language, you know, plain, you know, clear English. Um, and they're, they do very good work. Their coverage on, uh, I don't think he's still there, but Herman Lopez um, did excellent coverage of, you know, gun control and gun violence and issues like that. I think he's at the New York Times now, but um, nevertheless, uh, Vox does very good work. I'm, I'm continually impressed with, with the work they do. <clears throat> um, yeah, I would say that, yeah, New York Times, Guardian, Democracy Now! and Vox. I would start there. There, yeah, that's four. That's that's easy to remember. Um, yeah, but I mean, students ask me all the time. You know, they're like they're looking for this perfect news source, and well, <laughs> I got bad news for you. you know, there is no you know magic bullet. There's no perfect news source. They all have flaws. They all lean. Uh, they all have the shortcomings. They are organizations producing a product. You know. Um, the New York Times, they're flawed up one side and down the other, but for domestic coverage, they're pretty good. You can learn something. Now, when it, when it gets into foreign affairs and international coverage, it can, well, depending on the topic, depending on the topic, they can, I don't know, their New York, their, excuse me, their, their Middle East coverage, their coverage of coverage of Israel is very Israel friendly, so you don't get a clear picture of what's going on in the Palestinian territories, because you know the the people who write for the New York Times they know better. They know that you know a certain type of article is not going to not going to pass the editor's desk. They know the rules, you know. If you're going to write about Israel, you're going to need to write about Israel with you know velvet gloves on, and you know. Um, you got to handle Israel very carefully. You, the, there's kind of a general rule the New York Times about writing, reporting on allies. You know, you're going to report on Saudi Arabia. You got to go real easy. You know, kid gloves as they as they call them. Um, you got to go easy with with allies. With enemies, you can you can say whatever you want. You know, you can say whatever you want. You write on well, you want to write an article about Hamas, you can. You, you could make stuff up. Nobody cares. Yeah. But if you're writing about Israel, you got one comma out of place and the readership will just, you know, become apoplectic. You know, they just lose it. Yeah. But if you want to write an article about Hamas or Hezbollah or someone like that, yeah, you can. Nobody cares. You can just say what you want. You want to write about Russia or China? Fine. Say whatever you want. You know. You can be critical, you can describe them in, you know, forensic detail, but you can't describe Israel in that kind of detail. You can't say what they're up to. You can say what the Russians are up to. You can't say what the Israelis are up to. You know, there's, there, there, there's a code of conduct if you're a journalist at the New York Times. Um, and it's taken quite seriously, and you will find yourself without a career if, uh, if you go rogue, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, it, it won't be tolerated. Nevertheless, uh, I do recommend that people read the New York Times. It is an important newspaper because of the people who are reading it, primarily. Uh, it's a very important newspaper. I was going to say, any, any conservative news media with any substantive content that you recommend? I would say, oh boy, uh, I would say The Economist. Or maybe then maybe the Wall Street Journal. I mean, they're kind of quote unquote. I think the the Economist just comes out and says that they're conservative, you know, quote unquote. Whatever. I don't even know what that word means anymore. But I would say the Economist is is a, it's worth looking at the Economist. It's worth looking at the. It's definitely worth looking at the Wall Street Journal. Um, their op-ed page is a little too far to the right for my tastes, but um, they have very good reportage they have very good uh, the very good journalism going on in the financial press that goes for the financial times as well uh i would check those out for sure so before we go uh we usually like to ask our guests uh if they're working on anything in the currently 
in, in the, what was the last part again, David? I was going to say before we go, we usually like to ask our guests what they're working on currently. Oh, okay. Uh, I have a new book in the works, another book. Um, it's a collection of essays, and right now, <laughs> this might change, but right now, uh, a memoir plus a collection of essays. So uh, we'll see. I don't, that might change. Um, I've also got um, an essay on, on philosopher Thomas Hobbes. I just submitted an essay on Jean-Paul Sartre for publication, and I'm working right now on a book review on Nicholas Spencer's forthcoming Magisteria. So that's keeping me busy. <laughs> you know, those those are those essays in the new book. Yeah. Uh, Gregory Harms, thank you so much for the interview. Thank you, David.